Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sarah Kane. Two major presentations of Sarah Kane's work are on view now across the United States, and a third just closed. The National Gallery of Art is showing Kane's My Favorite Season is the Fall of the Patriarchy. It'll be up into December. It's an installation that fills much of the ground floor of the National Gallery of Art's East Building. The presentation was organized by Molly Donovan and Paige Rosansky. Concurrently, the Tang Teaching Museum at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York, is showing Kane's Enter the Center. The exhibition features more than a dozen Kane paintings made between 2012 and 2020, a site-specific hand-painted gallery floor, painted furniture, and a new facsimile artist book. It was all curated by Ian Barry in collaboration with Kane and is on view through January 2nd, 2022. The show that just closed was a site-responsive exhibition of Kane's work titled Sarah Kane in Nature at the Momentary in Bentonville, Arkansas. It closed at the end of May. We'll have a link to the show on manpodcast.com. Previously, Kane has received solo exhibitions at museums such as the Contemporary Art Museum Raleigh, the Institute of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, and the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. She's also fulfilled a fantastic permanent commission at the San Francisco International Airport. On the second segment, Robert Cosolino joins me to discuss Supernatural America, the paranormal in American art. Please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to the show. It really helps new people find the program. Sarah Kane, after the break. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16th, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. The Getty Center is having something of a photography moment this summer. Four exhibitions are now open and run through October 10th. Mario Giacomelli, Figure Ground, which features the humanistic work of one of the foremost Italian photographers of the 20th century. The Expanded Landscape, a selection of large-scale, graphically abstract contemporary works. Photo Flux, Unshuttering L.A., which brings together inspiring photographs by L.A.-based artists of color. And In Focus Protest, an exhibition of images made during periods of social struggle in the U.S., Learn more and make free advance reservations at getty.edu. And we're back. Sarah Kane, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. We think of painters as sometimes, over the course of their careers, expanding beyond the canvas to to do other things. But your journey is kind of the opposite. You started off canvas outside two-dimensional spaces, worked your way to canvas, and then after you'd gotten to canvas, worked your way off of it, making installation and adding three-dimensional elements to your pictures. So if we go back to the early aughts, why did you start off canvas? I've always been really interested in space, 
it was a financial decision too in the beginning. And it was a decision to find freedom and not have objects around me. But I was just going into abandoned buildings and using them as studios. I had like very funny ideas where I wasn't going to pay rent. And I would just install at museums on the prep crew and like get $900 and live off of it for three months and then do it again. And I kind of can't believe I lived like that now. But it wasn't until I started having enough money to be able to buy canvases and stretch them. But also I was very bored by museums in general and canvas, like traditional painting and the way it was shown was sort of very boring to me. And I was always looking to make things that felt like they had life and existed in the present moment instead of like just artifacts. But I never stopped making the works on site, even when I did start working on canvases again. And and the canvases very much time with when I settled down. And because when I came up, I was in San Francisco in the first tech thing, and I moved every six months out of necessity. So I really couldn't have belongings very tied to how I was living. One of those early pieces is 2003's Epigram on Being Alone, A Golden Willow Hits You on the Head, which is a corner painting that seems to me to be an address of, say, Doug Wheeler and, and James Terrell, especially Terrell's corner pieces. Were you interested in them in light and space and in translating their ideas into what was becoming your language of painting in, in space? No, I didn't actually know about the Terrell Corner pieces when I was making those, which is kind of wild. But that's a Bernadette Mayer epigram, and Bernadette has been a longtime friend. But we were just, I can't remember when we met, but we were really good friends at that time. And it was also my first solo show ever. It was in an artist-run space called Lucky Tackle in Oakland. And it was the first time anyone gave me a full space. So, you know, epigram on being alone, a golden willow hits you in the head is, to me, it was like, oh, finally, like I have space and support to actually work out some ideas. And I made that on site with all the works on site and, and my other paintings, but none of it was planned. And then on the other side of that golden corner and then it has a high gloss white center that was reflecting I didn't I don't think I even knew it was going to do that a lot of my work is just moving with the material and then opposite was this rainbow corner painting called to belong to which was for Alicia McCarthy who had let me rent a room that I was living in in Oakland so a, a lot of times my work is sort of portraits for other people too or so I had like Bernadette and Alicia, like two great, amazing people in the room with me when I was working. But I also like scribbled on the wall that I needed a house and I could pay like little or no rent, <laughs> which, <laughs> and that might be why Alicia let me move in. I can't really remember. It was so long ago, but I didn't know those Terrell pieces, which is just wild. I remember the first time I saw them because I had also done some of those around the same time in a squat in North Beach, San Francisco, which that's, that was the first time I was up for the Seco Award and I didn't get it. I took all the museum crew to this old abandoned, the squat, which, you know, now like museums are always looking to do things offsite, but it was not the thing back then. <laughs> It was, it was pretty wild. But then came around in the next year when I took them to a gallery. Sika is SF MoMA's exhibition and award for early career San Francisco area artists. So I'm guessing that this is about when you made The Alchemy of Closeness? 
oh yeah. And that was me and Joanna knew somewhere really close at the time. And that was something she had said to me. I think we both worked our last jobs together in a restaurant. And she had said that sentence to me when I was making that piece. So the alchemy of closeness has those two corners. They're very trail that I'm not aware of trail at the point. And one of them is just this dirty old corner that's painted out white. And then the other one is just the dirt. And I cleaned the wall and they, they sit together in this old Victorian bay window. So right here at the, at the beginning of your career, you're interested in the relationship between painted surfaces and the space around them. And that's an idea that you're still interested in. And, you know, almost 20 years and many resources later, you know, it's an idea you've really been able to explode. What about the relationship between painted surface and surroundings slash space still interests you? I think it's just one of the most basic. It's such a fundamental thing to being a painter and also being a human. When you were talking, I was thinking that also the basic relationships between people or the space between people or the unspoken spaces between people and also redefining and boundaries between, you know, what the canvas surface can be, what's a healthy boundary between this person and myself, or how do you walk out into the world and stay open so you can see things to bring back in the studio, but also have enough guard up that you're still okay in the world. So I think that I'm always been really interested in in between spaces. And it's probably because there's stuff to figure out there. I always like if I figure out what I'm doing in a painting, it usually doesn't come back into the work until later down the line where I'll see an image and want to go back and sort of expand it more. But I think like the core of what I'm doing is is about discovery and and in in between the spaces there's there's more to figure out because I don't know it yet. You know, I don't think it's so much in these early pieces that we've been talking about, but I think as your career goes on, it becomes possible, maybe even fundamental, for someone who walks into a space you've created and painted to imagine you working within the space. We can tell how a person was there, if you will. And while there is no element of performance in your work in that way, maybe in kind of the John DeVola sense, there is a remnant of performance. Are you interested in a relationship between what you do and what you make and and performance? I've definitely thought about it a lot. And I've had like, I was in a show at De Cordova that was about that. It was called Paint Things and it was painting and performance. And so it's something that I've thought a lot about. And also people always want to like set a camera up and videotape it. And, and I've had to figure out how to negotiate that privacy factor. But I think about... Carolee Sheenman or somebody like that. And I think that the way the body and like, especially that piece where she's like swinging through the room, making marks on the wall, like that seems like an important piece that predates what I'm doing in a very different way on the works on site. But I'm an introvert that's forced to talk (laughs) to the world. I've had to learn how to like, you know, I'm not going to, you're not going to suspend me naked and let me draw on the wall. Like I have no interest in that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I think there's a core, like some sort of inner core noise. That's the same. Well, also like one of the very other first shows I did called a river of ifs was at Queensnails annex in 2006. And that's the show that 
broke me into the real art world. Actually, Tara McDowell brought Richard Tuttle by and he was having dinner with Tony Meyer and Tony Meyer's been my dealer ever since. And anyway, in that show, that sort of like took me out of the artist run space into having an art, an art world gallery. But I remember like I left all my trail mix and my tea and my mug and a plant on the desk in the gallery. And it was this very odd move that I couldn't really figure out why I was doing it. But in the works on site, they're not shrines because it was my own junk, but it was like something that made the viewer walk in and realize, oh, like a human's inhabited this space. And I did that again at the Orange County Museum in 2008 in this work on site. And and then it may be what you're talking about, like later it becomes really evident. But I, I also like I, now I do a lot of goofy things where like I'll leave a handprint or a footprint. Like I'm into people realizing that the, the works on site are so bodily and there is a human because I've always been very interested in the hand and I'm not the type of painter that has somebody else come in and paint my paintings. The way I paint is so physical that I, I like there to be traces of it. That reminds me of, there's a very good Willem de Kooning painting at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts that I've mentioned on the podcast before. And it's, you know, a classic de Kooning abstraction. And there's a handprint in the middle of it because his daughter walked in while he was painting it, <laughs> stuck her hand in paint, then stuck her hand on the canvas. And he left it in or on, as the case may be, for like the reason you just described as a, as a marker of humanity of, of human presence julie maritou has a similar story regarding a print i think that she made a couple of years ago and i cop to nerding out on, <laughs> on those little human details in the mix of in, in the midst of bravura bravura painting well that's what painting is it's just i mean or every if you have an everyday studio practice you are just recording life. It's the same way as like a poet writing poems throughout the whole life. One of the tensions that runs through your work, really from the beginning, from those, you know, early aughts pieces we were talking about, you know, into the present is the tension between flatness and depth, a classic concern of, of modernist painting. And you've played with it in the ways we've talked about in terms of how a very, very shiny paint, you know, seems to be shining out from a corner. It also exists in these very Alicia McCarthy-like patches of some of your paintings, you know, with her wavy, stripy grids that are, you know, one of the great painterly signatures in American painting. And, you know, it's kind of stayed in your work from the beginning. Do you think of yourself as playing with flatness and depth, or is it just such a part of 100 years of modern, 120 years almost, of modernist language that... It's impossible to escape. I think it's how I paint. Maybe it's impossible to escape, but I think because I do this sort of like attack and resolve back and forth way of painting that whiting things out or like flat painting out over things is just sort of one of my basic vocabulary things and how I paint. But I also, it, it is really just like the first marks I ever made in painting, like when I was just you know, alone doing it myself as a kid, were these geometric, almost Ellsworth Kelly-like moves on paper. And I think that that then got juxtaposed with the more like aggressive, whether it's spray paint or scribbles. And I, 
I think there's just like, there's a push and pull between the two that I like so much. And it's, I don't know, like, I don't know if I, if I am looking for depth, but I think that some, there might be a way that I'm trying to transcribe actual physical space on a flat surface. And that's one of the few ways you can do it abstractly is to put those two things together. Tell me what you mean by tack and resolve. Oh, when I start a painting, it, it is very much like that piece. I should know the name of that piece I keep talking about, but the Carolee Sheeman flying through the room. There is some sort of like primal scream happening. And then there's like, okay, let's clean this up. And, <laughs> and, then, and then I go back at it. And it's this back and forth of like completely letting go, pulling it together, you know, and somehow resolving a harmony or, or it doesn't even have to be, you know, it might be a really aggressive, loud painting, but there's something about finding the balance or the balance that I want in the final piece between those two states, which I think is just human. It's like, how, how do we keep going and survive and like process everything? That's fascinating. Cause there, there in, in, in around 2010, you made a series of paintings in which you, you know, here, here's where words kind of begin to fail kind of peel back the outer surface of your painted object to reveal what you have made underneath, if you will. You know, you're literally tacking back part of the canvas. <laughs> that was the first time I really started with the canvas. And it was, and they were all based on the idea of different cities. And the way I could access the canvas was to destroy the canvas. And then the longer I kept going, I mean, I still destroy it to a certain extent, but that was the only entryway I could like allow myself. You mentioned Ellsworth Kelly a moment ago. There are real Ellsworth Kelly moments in those, those pictures, juxtapositions of flat color and shape on top of each other. And a lot of Thomas Scheibitz in them as well. I didn't know Thomas's work forever. And like, it kind of blew my mind when I, I mean, it's sort of embarrassing to say sort of recently learned about it, but Ellsworth Kelly, I used to wait on when I was a teenager in my hometown, his studio was in my hometown. So even before I knew what real art was, I think it probably osmosis got into me by knowing that there was this artist around. Wait on as in a restaurant? Yeah, I was the waitress. <laughs> <laughs> I also waited on David Hammonds and Layla Ali, all of whom I recognized, but Hammonds was hilarious. Because? Well, because he really wanted to sit by the window and I wasn't allowed to give the window. I mean, it's such a stupid story, but you know, I <laughs> wasn't allowed to break the rules and he really pushed me. And then I gave him the window and I went upstairs and this guy I worked with said, oh, I see you met my father. And I was like, is he an artist? He is a pain. And he was like, oh, he's an artist. And he told me his name. And I was like, oh, my God, the snowballs are one of my favorite pieces. You know, and then I had to go down and be like, OK, you deserve this window. You're fucking amazing. <laughs> but, you know, artists just have such attitudes in their work and in the world. And he got me to break the rule and take the manager yelling at me. The manager was a failed artist who would always tell me I should like give it up because I was never going to make it. Well, F him. Take that. <laughs> Art artists in breaking the rules, there are no boundaries between the studio and life, right? <laughs> so, so speaking of this tension between flatness and depth and tacking and removing and pulling back a part of the object to reveal more of the object... French Braid from 2011 is kind of a gendered explosion of that idea. You're addressing the body and decoration and hair and abstraction all in one thing. 
very simple question. Why did you braid painted surface? <laughs> I don't know, but the first one of the first things I do when I have long hair is to French braid it before I go into the studio because I, I always end up with paint all over. But I have made a lot of work about hair over the years. And I even like in the Made in LA, I got mugged and I cut off all my long hair and I braided it and dropped it on a canvas and like my this like creepy looked like a wig, but it was my hair braided was sitting high above in the installation. But I think it's, you know, it is a gender thing. And I mean, this is like basic psychology, but my mother would never let me cut my hair. So I was always the girl with long hair. And there's basic signifiers that go very far in the middle of nowhere, rural white America. And I thought a lot, like, I just wish she had let me shave my head at five, because I would have had freedom a lot sooner. But the first thing I did when I left home at 15 was to cut all my hair off. So I think there is, and, you know, any person that has to deal with the world in certain ways, we all have different ways that we have to deal with the world. But when I go out at night, I always have to cover up my hair, tuck it in a hat or cut it off. And so I don't know where I was with French braid. I probably had long hair. And it was also in a show. It was shown at the Orange County Museum with me and my buddy, George Herms. We were asked, George and I became good friends. And then Sarah Bancroft curated the show called Two Schools of Cool. When George told Sarah he, she should check out my work, and she said that, you know, she worked with Walter Hobbs and she knows all those guys from that generation or knew all of them. She said she had never had one of them like put forward a younger woman artist, and it really struck her. So she decided to redo that. So I was also in the room with Ed Moses and, oh my God, I'm forgetting who it was, but whoever it was, they wouldn't work with a woman. So I actually was in the room with three men and Ferris me. boys. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I can't even remember who it was, but they wouldn't work with a woman, which is like the whole point of the show. But anyway, I think like having that painting in that room too, with the French braid, you know, it was just like a little like, just deal with me, boys. But I mean, George is amazing. George has always been nothing but respectful and supportive and great. I, I was going to ask about George Herms later, but but seeing as we're talking about him now, before I ask my question, George was on the podcast in 2014. We'll have a link on this week's show page. Alicia McCarthy was on the show in 2019. We'll have a link on this week's show page. We'll have links to our Thomas Scheibitz and John Devola shows as well. I think you met George Herms at Skowhegan about about 15 years ago. I'm a huge George George Herms fan. George Herms, along with, with Ed Ruscher, are kind of glue between early post-war LA art and, and, and the present. Of course, they're, they're famously buds. Has either knowing him or his work informed or made its way into your work? I don't think so with made its way into my work, but I mean, I just saw him like two weeks ago. I, I really love the guy and his partner, Sue. And I think when I met George, he said this thing to me that really stuck. And so I met him in 2006. I was really socially awkward and I, ne I wouldn't have been able to like do this interview then. And I remember George saying something to me about how artists is like two spirals, one spinning out. Well, what the, the artist is spinning in and we're, we're looking and we're trying to figure out our work in the world. But then to be an artist and to be in the world, you have to do the spinning out. So it's like this, you know, contradictory, conflicting state. And sometimes it just takes someone else to say something so basic to you. And it clicked in my head and I was like, okay, so they're two separate things. 
And when it's, you know, if it, if you're getting caught in the middle of the spin, you can just sort of take yourself out and pick one of them. So that was really helpful. And also, I almost said this with the braid piece, but it's like such a silly thing to say. But I remember at that opening, Bill Berkson, who was also really good friends with George, and Bill was one of my really good friends and former teacher and undergrad. And Bill said to me that that French braid painting was a masterpiece. And I remember thinking like, you don't understand the other work. That's not the masterpiece. <laughs> like I, it totally wasn't the work I would have. But Bill and I always sort of like, we hit heads on things and especially around gendered things. But anyway, when I met George, Bill was also the distinguished lecturer. So it was, I don't know, it was a, it was a great moment of the best. And also that's how I know Bernadette Mayer because of Bill and Bernadette were such good friends. So I, I don't know. I like, I feel like I have a foot in that generation where it's so tragic to me that people born now will not get to meet any of the beats or any of those like early San Francisco people. And it's, it's, I mean, so many have died recently, but I feel so lucky that that spirit sort of was able to like stick on me when I was a kid and that's in the work. But I also think that the way I use objects or the same, like there's similarities with me and George that for me just comes out of a basic like financial position of not having art materials. So going to look for them in the woods or something and also an appreciation of nature. And, you know, he's still, he makes his stuff outside. He lets it age outside. He said the funniest thing to me two weeks ago about sculpture. I'm totally going to misquote it, but he was talking about how he's been making sculpture that is of the hand and handheld and hand size and he, he said something about how nobody wants uncle charlie to move in the room and he was talking like like a big sculpture is is like as if uncle charlie has said he's now going to live with you which is <laughs> so funny and so true especially talking to you who does room-sized stuff <laughs> yeah and I did try, you know, in that 2015 show at Honor Fraser, I made these three works that were all had one piece of furniture and one canvas. And it was this whole idea of like an object and a canvas. And there's still, I have that dresser showing now at the momentary and I don't know what to do with the dresser. So I think I'm going to have them trash the dresser and just send me back the canvas because I, I hate, I'm not going to pay for storage. I'm not going to waste my money storing something forever. So there is this like recycle, basic recycling brain that although george has an enormous amount of storage so maybe he feels totally different all those i mean it, you know, that generation stored a lot of stuff i mean betty sar stored piles of stuff too right so it wasn't just san francisco you know the thing that i see herms doing a lot in his work that i see you doing starting in the early 2010s is there stuff hanging off of or hanging on to the work hanging from the work and it's a move that succeeds in your pictures for lots of reasons. Among among them is it, it reminds us of motion and, and paint falling and paint suspended because it's stuck on canvas or on another support. It, it's a move that works a very different way in Herms's work. Do you think you might have, I don't know, I don't want to make it overly direct, but gotten that from him or gotten some permission from his work to do that? I don't think so because the very first canvases I did all had that in there when I was in grad school at Berkeley and I didn't know George yet. But there's one I made called Sister that was about hair and it has all this ribbon stuck in the middle. There was another one called Forgiving the Red Sea, which has like 
rocks that it would, they were rocks that had been hit by the spray painting of the street lines outside. They were like repainting the street. And then the rocks came in and sat on the canvas and this painting came out of that. And also the first object I ever made that I painted on was a rock that I picked up and, and which is interesting because it fit in my hand, which is hilarious. Cause that's like exactly Exactly what George was just saying to me the other day. Like there is something so satisfying about a sculpture that fits exactly in your hand that then you transform. So I don't know if I can find that piece while we're talking about it on my screen, but it's a piece that is about the same size as Via Selmans's works that are you know one painted rock and one not painted rock, and the, and the, the painted rock is a trompe made to look like the real rock or the other rock or the actual rock. And, and yours is such a kind of puckishly Alicia McCarthy rejection of but engagement with the Via Selman's idea. It cracks me up all the all the time. <laughs> yeah, it was called Rock of Goodwill, and I, I found it outside of my studio. It also reminds me of, which I didn't know at the time, but the Wallace Berman, it, it feels like a grenade in a hand. Another, I don't know, theme, subject, area in which you've worked over the many years is is in the relationship between art and design, or at least in the United States. We talk about it as being a relationship between art and design. Within the French tradition, it would be discussed as the relationship between art and decoration. I don't really see that, but I get that all the time. With the, the decoration part or the art and design part? All of the above. But then when I read, what was the show that was just here? Anna Katz's show on the pattern and decoration, wanted, which was just one of the great scholarly and historical exhibitions of the last few years. It was at MOCA. It was absolutely great. And for years, people would talk about them in my studio visits, and I didn't really know the work, and I didn't know what they were talking about. And then when I read more about it, it made a lot of sense in the way that they were fighting against minimalism. But minimalism also is like one of the most important, like minimalism and art povera are kind of like the two most important historical moments for me, even maybe maybe more than Abex, which I think is what people just lump me in with a lot. But it, it's interesting now that I've been doing the stained glass, like it's like how can how can I still say that? Like I'm moving so far, you know? <laughs> That's what I was gonna ask next. There's a there's a great big stained glass of yours, for example, at the San Francisco International Airport. Yeah, and I've been making tons of them and they're great and and they they look so much like my early works on paper or the rock of goodwill could be stained glass. And I don't know, I don't really know where that comes from and I had always wanted to work in stained glass, but or I'd always been into it, like I love looking at it and I was maybe unfortunately raised Catholic, so I have all of that in me. But the opportunity for SFO just came to me and it wasn't like I could have done a mural or a mosaic, which I also really want to do. It had to be in glass. So that was the first glass work I ever started, which is insane because it's 10 by 150 feet. And now they've changed very fast in like the three years and there's a lot more details and I'm embedding prisms and I've figured out this way of fused glass that sort of looks like tie-dye that I throw in there a lot. And, but that is so decorative and design. I mean, it's like, I really can't argue that even though I want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned mosaic. I think of Jorge Pardo working in the best tradition between sculpture and painting and decoration. Is, is he an artist you've looked at and learned from? No, the women of the Bauhaus, especially Gunta Stoltz's, I don't know if I'm saying, saying her name right, but her 
weavings blow my mind. And I got really into looking at them when I was an undergrad. So the early aughts. I don't really know too much of Jorge Pardo's work. I mean, I've, I know the fabricators he works with, but maybe there's more for me to know. I've never really, it hasn't resonated with me, but the women of the Bauhaus, my mother also worked at the Shaker Museum around that same time in upstate New York. So I had access to all the Shaker drawings and they would just let me handle the songbooks. The show at the drawing center blew my mind. And, and also like I knew about the tantric drawings before they were like everywhere because of great teachers. And I don't know, I feel like I was exposed to a lot of that. So more, I guess what I'm, this is interesting. I've never thought about it. Maybe it's not interesting, but I'm, I'm never, I'm not into design or decoration because to me, that's not really, it doesn't, it's like void of feeling. It's more of a repetition and nothing in my work really repeats, but I'm really into tradition and craft that is transcending in a way. So even the stained glass are so emotional and you're like looking at them and there's a petrified priest under it. It's just like, they're so creepy and weird and illuminating and they're emotive. So design to me is not really emotive, but maybe I just don't know enough about it. I just want more. I want something that like digs deeper. Sounds very French. Well, I did live in France. <laughs> I, that's where I ran away to at 15. So I had this whole 15 to 17. I was lear- I didn't speak French and I lived in France on my own. And well, first I was an exchange student. And then I lived al- alone in Paris. I haven't even realized until sort of recently how much those two years impacted my sensibility on like every level and just who I am. And like, I'm such a snob in some ways that I think, I mean, it's not something I'm proud of, but I say these things and I'm like, oh my God, it's just so French the way I just approached that or, or said no instantly. Um, <laughs> but then I'm so American because there, there, there was nothing French about me. I just stuck out like a sore thumb and maybe that's part of the opposites. You mentioned that minimalism informs you. One of uh, that caught my ear because... Uh, goodness, do you splash a lot of color around for a minimalism besotted artist. And then I thought of a work you did in, I think, 2012 on, I guess is the right term, on a parking garage in London called A Beginning. And it's kind of a piece that is minimal and explodes what you were doing in, in, in the early aughts. It's also, it's a risk and is fascinating is that an example of how something migrated from minimalism and was synthesized through who you already were by that point? Yeah, totally. And that, and then it like, it jumps out. I mean, it almost is sort of like what I was saying with minimalism and art povera, because the thing that makes that piece is it's in a brutalistic carport in this show called Bold Tendencies. Yes, car, and carport for London, sorry. And you see it first on the like I think it had eight stories so you're on the seventh story and you see it and it's like this geometric white painting and then you walk around the cement ramp and you see it again from the top and it's a lot cleaner and oh but when you're on the seventh story you just get this window bar that I think you see clouds and then when you're up top you see all the clouds and you see this window bar into the gray so it really is about the natural environment making that piece 
like Fred Sandback is one of my favorite artists. And in a way, that piece does the same thing. It's just this line through spaces. I curated a show from the collection of MCA San Diego and also my own work, but I included a Sandback and a Devola print from the that famous firefighter test house series. In Malibu, yeah. The Zuma Beach pictures. Yeah. And like there's, you know, tons of threads running through both of those works that relate. And Ellsworth Kelly's works based on shadows also relate a lot to what I was doing. Even before I was just doing it and I didn't really know. I don't think it was ever like, I didn't see it and then try to make the work, but these are the people that I have like a deep affinity for. I want to ask about a couple moves that pop up in your work over and over again. One of them is the X form, you know, X's, if you will. First, why do you love X's? I'm trying to remember when I first did the X's. I'm pretty sure there was actually a show Greer curated at the Pizzuti collection called Taking Up Space. And it came from something I said in an interview where I said the first X's were me just claiming space, which was a very real thing. Even though I went to Berkeley for grad school, I was the only woman in my class. Um, in the class before me, only had one woman. So in the crits, and then later it got balanced out. Alicia actually was in the class after me. So we got to do grad school together. But anyway, the X's started off about taking up space. I think it was just about making a mark and making it really loud. And also me mentally committing to the fact that I was going to take up this whole space. I did the show in Raleigh called the imaginary architecture of love. And that was filled with X's and it was a this is 20, 2015 at the Contemporary Art Museum, Raleigh. Yeah, and it, the whole space is like 6,000 square feet, and it wrapped all around. I made it in nine days, and I didn't do any planning. And it wrapped around all the walls, bled onto the floor, jumped into the lobby, and then onto the windows. And the windows had these big X's, which also, like, that's wild to look at those windows now cause, and then look at SFO, because I've been working on windows for as long as I can remember, but not actually, you know, in a permanent window. And then in the center had all these beds that people were, mattresses that people were supposed to chill out and look at the work. But I think the the X's were really just about, okay, taking it, taking it to the next level and claiming my space and making something that like you had to contend with. I don't know if I do them. There's no X's happening here right now. <laughs> I don't know. It just happened. There may be a, a large X in your National Gallery of Art exhibition. Oh, there is. You're right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's me doing a big X over Max Ernst. I forgot about that. That was probably just me being like, God damn it. So that it has all these giant boxes that I think if someone went through the show fast, they would probably think that I made those wooden boxes. But when the project started... I was going to do a painting and I think there was going to be some sculptures around me. And then I, I don't know, like it's interesting the way that I can't remember the project has gone on for so long and with the pandemic it changed so much, but basically they're renovating the ceiling and they had to protect the masterpieces underneath the ceiling. So they made these boxes and the boxes were supposed to be like the size of maybe two or three cars stacked on top of each other. But now they're like bigger than my house. They're enormous. And and it's like, I made this giant painting, but when you drop it in with these huge boxes, still, it's called my favorite season is the fall of the patriarchy. Still the fucking patriarchy is bigger than my painting and dwarfing my painting. 
So the first move I did was just a big violet pink X over the Max Ernst, which is, I think there is like a, one of my first react gut responses is like a rebellious thing. And that, that X did come out as, and it's also like, okay, well, I'm going to get this crazy, huge atrium space. I'm just going to take up the space. And it's a big, like, here I am. And it was the very first move. And then I did the other things out, but I had made the campus before um, in my studio and then it's going to come together in pieces. When the National Gallery of Art show opens, we will add images of it to the show page at manpodcast.com. So it's interesting to hear you talk about the exes in the context of sex and gender. In 2013, at a show uh, in Columbus, Ohio, you used two exes together. And the Raleigh show you mentioned a moment ago, those windows also feature two exes. And in both contexts, at least for me, they read as chromosomes. Was that in your thinking? No, the Raleigh show probably has like a dozen X's, but... But on the window, just on the windows, it's two, yeah. I think it's four, but I don't know. I don't have the whole photo. I never think like that. My brain isn't as linear <laughs> as that. That's great that there's writers and thinkers because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just like a swirl <laughs> of feelings. The one in Columbus, that installation is called Jill, and it was a portrait of my jill dossie the curator and it was sort of i was thinking a lot about her when i was making it and i also have this painting called kiss which i'm like almost embarrassed to say this now but it was a portrait of kanye's yeezus album because i fucking loved kanye and that was before trump so <laughs> <laughs> but that there's a big x in that too but also like this is really going down the rabbit hole but one of the last jobs I worked for a year was I would drive to Long Beach twice a week and make art with a nonverbal autistic woman in her garage. And she couldn't use her arms. So she also couldn't speak. But then once a week, she, she would go to therapy. I wasn't there, but she had a machine that she could talk to. So then the next week, I would get feedback from the week before. It was totally confusing and she had named me Wild Organic. She would never say Sarah. She would type Wild Organic. And one of the paintings we made was this big X. And it was me, like, I would, it was sort of like the Ouija board. I'd put her hand over mine. And I think, like, you know, I was making it and her hand was there and then it became her art, but she couldn't really use her arms. But anyway, I think, like, there was something in that state where I was just doing something so basic and let's just do this together. And a lot of my work does sort of try, like that's maybe not minimalism, but there is something about trying to like just whittle everything down to something so like first thought is the best thought. And I think that the X has had that in it. It's also very graphic. And for years I've been very afraid of the graphic side of my work in um, 2008 at the California Biennial, I did an on-site work at Orange County and then an off-site called Midnight Mission, which was in a warehouse around the corner from uh, Homeless Mission, Midnight Mission. And the work I did there was so graphic that it completely freaked me out, even though it's just like, who cares? It's just an X. But it's taken years for me to be able to make those graphic moves around the painting and in the painting too, the canvas painting at the National Gallery and not like distrust it and I don't know maybe it's because of symbolism and like a graphic read a linear I don't know I don't know what it is but I 
when things make me uncomfortable in the work, it's usually good, but it usually takes me a long time to like come to terms with it. Another one of the moves that's been in your work for a long time is stripes. I can imagine, I mean, if I were like, you know, an anthropologist of your painting, I would surmise that they came in through Alicia McCarthy. You kind of played with them as plaids and, and harlequiny diamonds a bit, but they kind of finally resolved themselves as stripes, which stayed in your work for a long time. And then in more recent years, you've kind of bent the stripes into wavy, stripey forms which is all the worst way ever <laughs> of asking what about stripes worked for you? And then why did you choose to bend them? They're before me and Alicia and also Zyla Jane is one of my closest friends and one of Alicia's closest, longest friends and Zyla fits all the stripes and lines, but mine originate from the early works on site and I was tracing floorboards. So a lot of the ones, I have a painting here that's going to be in a show in September at Broadway, a new gallery in Tribeca, and it has the same floorboard tracings that I have a painting called Floor Sex that's in Lachman's collection, and it has my studio floorboards traced. So it's hardwood floor. And a lot of times, like, there's circles that come from hula hoops. And it was just like, I was in London and I needed to make circles. It was in that same bold tendency show. And I, I just look for like fast, quick ways to get the shape that I need. And either I'll make, you know, make a funny contraption or around the time that the stripes came into the canvases, I was also making paintings that pulled from the architecture. But even before the canvases, I did this piece called Pink Swoosh for BB, which was for Bill Berkson. And that's very early. That's 2002. Yeah. And it's like right before my friendship with Alicia really started. Anyway, I can't really remember. But I also did this other piece, Galisteo, which is based on the painting of I mean, the photograph of Agnes Martin in her studio in Galisteo. So Agnes Martin is a huge early Stripes influence. Yeah, she was like really, her writings were monumental to me in finding, finding my way and finding the ability and space and freedom just to make space for myself. But yeah, I'm looking at these Stripes right here and they're, they're totally the floorboards that most of my studios have had. And then you've begun to swirl them. They they continue in the work in say works you showed at Vielmetter during during the pandemic as big swirly luscious things. Yeah, that actually was a cause and effect of the stained glass. When I was working on the SFO piece for so long, everything became so hard edge and geometric in a way that I felt like I couldn't stop. I kept making paintings that looked like stained glass. So there's a self-portrait that was in the Veal Matter show and is in the Momentary show. And that was a conscious effort of like, you're not allowed any hard edges, just, you know, get get wavy again. But I have done like, I've done two paintings called Wavy that are very wavy <laughs> and beaded. And a lot of the works on paper, the music sheets are more organic. Let me bring those in because those were the last thing I, I wanted to close with those. You know, we had been talking about how you work on a range of scales, but because I'm a schmo, we've mostly been talking about the very large scale stuff on which you work. But since 2008, you've been working on a group of works called Music Book. It will be shown or they will be shown. I'm not sure what the right pronoun is. At the Tang Show, 13 years worth of these works. 
So I guess I have a couple questions about those. What What is their relationship to Persian or Indian miniature painting? Well, first, I'm just going to say the music book is one object and it's bound. It's a bound book that's going to be made into a facsimile. But I have also made hundreds of works on paper on vintage music sheets. I first picked up that music paper in a, tr- a trip to Zurich in a thrift store. And I picked it up for one of my closest friends, Coulter Jacobson, because he uses a lot of found paper. And I thought the back of the paper would be good for him. But then I did, it went like six months without me seeing him. And if anything's around, it just ends up in my art. So <laughs> that's how the first one started. And the first ones were on the back, but then I cut through them and I realized, why am I not like, like reacting to the other side? But I also did I did see this great Indian miniature show around that same time. Is it Howard Hodge? Howard Hodgkin, the British painter? Yeah, he has an enormous Indian miniature painting collection. And the show I saw was mostly from his collection. Yeah, I think I I saw it somewhere in Switzerland. But I've also, I had been like already using gouache. I had a a teacher and a friend, Lainey Geyer, Lainey Geyer in San Francisco when I was at the Art Institute and Lainey's all about gouache and there was I lived around the corner from this pigment store in the mission so I used to make my own egg tempera and so it does predate all the music sheet stuff but I think it's it's a really gouache is an amazing paint because you can save it forever it's economical and I like the matte opaque quality of it I was just going to say it was interesting. We were talking about stripes and, of course, in some of your music paper or whatever, I'm not using the right word, but in some of your, your sheet music paper drawings, you know, the the stripes of the, oh, God, I'm not a music person, the music staffs or the music bars. Yeah, are, they come are, through are, the same as the floor. Yeah, I mean, it's whether it's like I'm doing a work on site or a drawing on a found paper or wherever like I I usually start by looking at what's already there and deciding which parts to work with and which parts to reject and a lot of the objects that I bring in are also ways to start a conversation or or it's an object that I just think is so ridiculous or I don't know it's a, I don't even necessarily like the objects there's just something to them that I think could be expanded into a painting. And there's also a lot of humor in them too. Oh, I should have spent more time on that. Yes. Cause your work is very often very, 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 very funny. <laughs> I didn't know that forever. <laughs> your work is now I get it. full of visual jokes. And I mean, I, I, I am very tired. I, I think male artists do this a lot of artists in 2021 telling the same jokes Picasso told with, you know, male centering cubism you know like that just you know i i saw on my instagram feed the other day a carol dunham painting that was just basically remaking a a penis joke from a 1907 matisse and i was like are we really still doing that 120 years later i saw carol dunham speak and it was one of the first times i saw an artist speak and liked his work so much more after he really can't stop drawing the dicks and it he like the reason he's doing them was so different than what I thought, but it was kind of fascinating. There, you, mostly, I go hear an artist talk, and I like it pisses me off, and I like the work less. But he's one of the few people that I it really I don't know I was able to like look at the work differently. But usually, I don't see the point in dicks. 
Yeah, whereas, whereas the jokes in your work or the visual jokes in your work seem so much more original and clever and sly and within the space between art and the things art is representing or addressing. Um, it is one of the uh, really great things about your work and that keeps old works fresh. Sarah Kane, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It was nice to talk with you. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston, presenting Three Centuries of American Art, Antiquities, European and American Masterpieces from the Fayez S. Seraphim Collection, showcasing more than 200 works from Impressionism through Abstract Expressionism, Pop, Minimalism, and Contemporary Art. MFAH.org slash Seraphim Collection. Welcome back. My next guest is Robert Cozzolino, the curator of Supernatural America, the Paranormal in American Art. It's at the Toledo Museum of Art through September 5th. The exhibition examines the relationship between American art and ideas of the supernatural across several centuries. It'll travel from Toledo to the Speed Art Museum in Louisville before arriving at Cozzolino's home institution, the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Robert Cozzolino, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's great to be here. In the context of this exhibition, anyway, haha, what is the paranormal? So the way that we're using the paranormal in this exhibition is to refer to experiences and phenomena beyond scientific explanation that also seem to transcend the laws of nature and additionally suggest an order of existence beyond the known universe. So all of those kinds of things that relate to the mysterious and the intangible, but are felt in the body of the experiencer. And so one might naturally think of something like spirit photography as being kind of very directly paranormal. But in this exhibition, you are also offering the paranormal as an experience and uh, reference to broader social histories. Yeah. And I guess I would say that one thing that really defines what I decided to include in this exhibition with a lot of input from a lot of different kinds of people from different communities is that I wanted to steer clear, if possible, of it being a show that was depictions of imaginary things. The good example here would be the material that relates to UFOs is not material that is science fiction. It's based on the artist's actual claiming they witnessed something. It's about eyewitness accounts, firsthand experience. That's the defining feature of the material that's in the exhibition. There's a handful of things for just establishing, because this is a first pass at this subject, in American art at least, of things like you know the John Kedor painting of the Headless Horseman chasing Ichabod Crane that's based on literature. But the majority of the material in this exhibition, whether it's the contemporary artists or it's artists who, you know, died in the 19th century, is based on going to the archive or going to interviews with them and seeing that they were believers or they had experiences that they couldn't explain and they wanted to make art about it. You open your catalog essay with a Jack Whitten story, and it seems to me like a really good example of how one of the histories the paranormal 
gives you access to is America's white supremacist history. What is the Jack story? <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah, one of the goals of this project was to you know bring forth and make visible all of these aspects of American culture that have been pervasive and incredibly influential on how we talk about experience and to not just bring forth, you know, people who are mediums who weren't really working in the art world, but were working at spiritualist camps and channeling spirits as part of a sacred practice, but to look at artists that, you know, your audience might consider mainstream or known and to see if they themselves had these kinds of experiences and to look at how did it affect the way they made art thought about art, conceived of their own artistic identity, and thus have a broader effect on culture in the United States. So Witten's a good example where he talks in several places across time, you know, different interviews, and also in his writes in his notebooks about psychic experiences, being interested in spirits. He makes so many reliquary sculptures that are honoring the dead, whether they're animals or people, and, and lots of homages to people. But there's one particular group of paintings that he started in 1964 that were a breakthrough series that he called with Catherine Canjo, who is a curator of his retrospective in 2015, ghost paintings. And they were hidden from view for a long time. So there are a series of paintings that are done on a variety of surfaces. But basically what happens is that there's a kind of a, a muslin, semi-porous fabric that's stretched across after he puts down kind of gray paint uh, on the surface and then the paint sort of oozes through there and then he'd play around with the viscosity with a brush or something and then the resulting image was spectral and suggestive and mysterious to him and he couldn't get out of his head and he made many of these paintings some of them are on canvas but the two that are in the exhibition or the three one is on glass and that's important because in some ways it relates to the origin story of them that he talked about. So he talked about how when he was a little kid, he would take trips back to his father's hometown in Mississippi, and they'd pass through a place where you know folks would point to this, this courthouse and say that there was a ghost image in the window, a fuzzy gray image of a, of a man. And the story was that a local black man was accused of setting fire to a church, of course, falsely accused, and he was arrested and he was waiting in this area and a group of white people were coming to, to lynch him. And as he was waiting there, looking at this mob scene, a thunderstorm came out of nowhere and a bolt of lightning struck through the window and etched his image onto the glass. And Witten talks about how he was three years old and the story really spooked him, haunted him, made a big impression for all of the things that come together in that. And the story is that every time somebody took the glass out and replaced it, the image came back. And he says that's where the ghost paintings came from. And when he looked at these, you know, he wasn't thinking of the story. He wasn't trying to illustrate that story. That's not what his intention was. He was trying to make pictures in, in a new way. And he wrote on his studio wall at the same time that the images, he was trying to, he was making an image of his thoughts. Somehow they were thought images. So, at the time, Witten was, like so many other black artists and some white artists as well, were thinking about what the relationship of their work was to the civil rights movement and being directly involved in protests and 
actions and stuff like that. So this tale, which is of an actual person named Henry Wells, who there's a sort of a, a historical marker in front of this courthouse in Pickens County in Alabama, is part of the legend of that place, sort of was a ghostly echo that hit him in his studio in 1964. You know, maybe because of all of the kinds of things that were still going on in the civil rights movement that were in a fever pitch at the time. And Witten said he was kind of seeing faces and places, and it all was mixed up in him. And at the same time, the thing that was really astounding to me to read in one of the interviews, I think the one with Beryl Wright from 1990 or so, is that he read an article in a camera magazine that was about Ted Sirios, the person who was a Chicago bellhop photographing his thoughts by putting Polaroids, undeveloped Polaroids against his head. And Witten saw those and thought, those are just like my paintings. Those are images of my thoughts. That's what's inside me. And so there was this deep, totally unplanned psychic connection between those two people, so strong that Witten wrote to the doctor that was investigating Sirius and had written this article about the experiences. You know, that's to me one of those things that adds a kind of dimension to Witten that maybe has been suppressed because along with the whole history of modernism, there's this intention to sanitize abstractions and make them about the forms and the con- rather than the content and the places where they come from, you know, that have kept this kind of experience that seems to be a really important to Witten out of the dialogue. And at the same time, it connects Witten with somebody that no one would ever think Witten was connected with, Ted Sirios, who himself is completely on the margins of the history of photography, but was one of the major occult practitioners in some ways of this idea of projecting your thoughts as an image into undeveloped film and the mystery that came with that. So that was a connection that totally blew my mind that seemed to be about the mysterious way that the paranormal travels through and connects different, perhaps unrelated, people in history. There are a number of artists in the show, Carrie James Marshall, Renee Stout, Betty Saar, whose art could sometimes be said to engage with alternate spiritualities, or in the case of, you know, maybe Renee Stout, almost inventing alternate spiritualities. What are the links between spirituality and faith and the paranormal that either interested you or that revealed itself to you as you, as you put this show together? You know, one of the things that was not really a problem, but it was something that I really wanted to try to do sensitively in this exhibition was to look at as many different kinds of people from different backgrounds and different faith traditions who do believe and did believe that there was a spirit world and we can contact it and it can contact us. And there's a way of having a relationship with that. And whether we're talking about ancestors or we're talking about other kinds of spirits that might be, you know, deities or saints or whatever, there's a value in people's lives for having practices that connect them with this otherworldly aspect of, you know, religion or belief. You know, there's a broad range of people, but really what's what's unifying them across these differences is that there are different ways in, is, is that connection to a spirit world and the power that comes with that, not only and the power and the responsibility that you're able to call on the spirits when you need them, or sometimes the spirits are throwing challenges into your life that you need to then you know, figure out what that message is that they're, they're sending. 
So like I said, both of those folks, Betty Saar and Renee Stout, you know, have as part of their personal practice. So Betty Saar's work in the show, a good example of that is Dambala, which is this, it's an altar basically. And so it's a sculpture, so it has this aesthetic value to it, but it is also potentially an active altar that would be making offerings to a particular spirit that is a kind of spirit of transformation. And so I think a lot of Betty Sarr's work actually has that dual overlapping relationship to practice and religious ritual, but also is part of her need to make things as a sculptor. And so there's that relationship right there in the object that it's all unified and together. And you can't take them out. You can't separate them. They're an integral part of that. And that's, I think, that is what shaped what Betty Sarr pointed me to. You know, she wanted it to be that kind of unified relationship between practice, religion, and aesthetic values. With Renee Stout, the piece, The Root Worker's Work Table, is an amazing thing that is all handmade by her or put together. Some of the glass that's on the tabletop in there, she made at a residency when she was making glass, and then she put it together, and she talks about how for a lot of her work, she's made an alter ego who she inhabits as a kind of, you know, a practitioner of healing arts and, and spellmaking and all sorts of other things. And it's in some ways an homage to those you know, people in the community, Black communities, Latinx communities, different kinds of communities who serve a kind of need, a spiritual need and a healing need and work out of different kinds of storefronts or maybe community centers and homes where they're offering advice about life based on what's happening in the spirit world. And Renee Stout talks about coming to this through being blown away by looking at Congolese Nikisi figures and being fascinated by them, by the idea that it's a sculpture that also had this spiritual practice embedded in it, and that the way that objects that were put inside of it could be offerings and have a way of altering people's lives studied that and then realized that there were practitioners, not in the distant to her world of the, the Congo in the 19th century, but right there in where she was in Pittsburgh at the time in uh, botanicas and different places like that. And so it's kind of an homage to that continuation that a diaspora of that need in the community to serve people in a way that kind of replaces traditional forms of health care, but also is always connected to spiritual care at the same time. And so that's what that piece is about for Renee, or one of the things. And she writes about it in the catalog, which is wonderful. Renee Stout was on the program in 2020. We'll have a link to that show on the show page for this episode. I want to name a couple works and ask you what about them interested you and how they fit your context for the show. There are a number of paintings in the exhibition that show, for lack of a better phrase, kind of shadow-dominated interiors. And I'm not talking about Edward Hopper. <laughs> I'm talking about more mysterious, mindfully darker, both literally and metaphorically, interiors. One of them is a Charles Birchfield, who we normally think of as a, a painter of the outdoors. It's titled Salem Bedroom Studio, February 21st, 1917, and indeed Birchfield painted it in 1917. Why shadowy interiors, and what about this Birchfield attracted your interest? Yeah, Birchfield is, he 
key to this project. Unfortunately, that painting and another one that was originally on the checklist couldn't be in the exhibition, but the Birchfield Penny Museum has replaced it with something else, which is, you know, only in the show. It wasn't it wasn't able to be in the catalog because we didn't know that would happen. But the Salem bedroom is written about by Sarah Burns extensively in, in the exhibition catalog. So, you know, it's done in 1917, which was a critical year for Birchfield because it is the time that he codified his conventions for abstract thoughts, which were a set of hieroglyphics, basically, that he devised to kind of visually code states of mind and emotions. And he felt them deeply, and he saw them in nature, and he saw them in things that people had built, maybe unconsciously in there. And he thought that it really affected how people interacted with their environment, and definitely him. So in a number of those paintings from 1917 onward, they're in there, and he hopes that the viewer is going to pick up on these things. So in the bedroom, we're looking down the bed, towards the end of the bed, towards a door that's starting to open up. And what's coming out of there are what looks like, it was probably in there as like a piece of drapery or clothing that's like over something, but it looks like a ghost. And it looks like... <laughs> other kinds of mysterious things that are emerging and coming out and potentially are going to come into the room and be around Birchfield. So, you know, it's a way of applying that stuff, whether it's dangerous, you know, some of these things are melancholy, morbidness, fear, to what he's seeing in his environment, but also expressing his emotions in a realist form at the same time. And that is just one of, you know, I could have had an two rooms of haunted interiors that show spectral presences in rooms. There are also some examples in the show of artists creating, I guess, what you would call paranormal figures. For example, Alison Sars' Cotton Demon, which is from 1993. What about, forgive me if this is, you know, an improper phrase, but what about the invention of paranormal figures interested you? You know, with the cotton demon, again, connects to what we were talking about earlier with using with a supernatural being a useful way of expressing the trauma of the underlying reality of American history. And so with that, it's a white figure, this white demon. It's part of a whole series that she did of demons. But it's looking at the role of agricultural spirits and the relationship between enslaved Africans in the American landscape. So it's like she's taken the image of whiteness as pure and innocent and like flipped it to make it barrenness of spirit and absence of soul, sort of removing any kind of color and, and that kind of quality to it. And then inside, almost like it's an offering, there's cotton inside of it right at the center. But, you know, Sar was trying to develop, you know, constructive ways of facing tragic and painful experiences in her work. These are her, you know, her own words about it. You know, you're making this image of death and pain and destruction into a buffoon in order to deal with it. And that's kind of how she saw the cotton demon figure. I am just now realizing that every artist we've discussed <laughs> so far, except for Charles Birchfield, has been a man podcast guest. We'll have links to all of those on the website. <laughs> I want to wrap up by getting back to something you said earlier about the narrative of modernist art history. And, and I think that one of the things this show and book is trying to do 
or at least is doing, is interrupting ossified histories that have been constructed around the inevitable progression of, of modern art and isms. And I think a lot of museum exhibitions, both of American art and non-American art, have been trying to do that in recent years. Was that a specific intent of yours? Were you mindfully undermining and trying to provide new rivers through which the canon might flow? Yeah, I mean, that's really defined my entire career and every project that I've worked on is this idea that, you know, the traditional narratives of American art and specifically modern art, you know, they're constructed and they're from a particular point of view. And they dominated in a way that was almost despotic, almost fascist-like, especially when we think about somebody like Clement Greenberg, whose pronouncements about what mattered in modernism really came to defined collecting practices, the way exhibitions were formed, what was considered modern and not, and a whole, for decades and decades, way that people experienced, for instance, the Museum of Modern Art when you walked through. It was a progression. It was rational. This begat that. And of course, that's just one particular white man's pronouncement about what mattered. But there's so many different ways, especially when you look back at the archive to see how things were happening in the art world on the ground. And so my whole career has been trying to extract those polyphonic, diverse ways of thinking about the relationship between artists and objects and culture and uh, broader influences on people. So one of the things that I hope is clear in this exhibition is that this is not a fringe sort of peripheral interest or quality in the history of, of American art. It is something that has been central. It has defined visual culture. It has defined the way people think about themselves as makers. And it has been political and spiritual at the same time. And one of the things that I think is important to think about here is that often when people talk about the spiritual and art, they're thinking about abstraction and they're thinking about this kind of vague notion that, you know, your spirit and your soul and your emotions are coming out in a particular way of making something that isn't realist and isn't tangible. But the mediums who are actual spiritualist practitioners who are channeling spirits and a number of the artists, most of the artists in this exhibition are finding that in order to make what they witnessed tangible to viewers who may not have had these experiences and to witness that is they use a realist method to make the most perhaps unbelievable things real and manifest in front of people's eyes. And so that turn right there, Tyler, which is something that I've been sort of thinking about from lots of different points of view, is asserting that realism and a realist method was every bit as modern and every bit as capable of dealing with the complexity of human experience than abstraction. And of course, that's been downplayed and seen as retrograde. Robert Cozzolino, thanks very much. Yeah, Tyler. Well, thanks. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.